Welcome to the History of English podcast, a podcast about the history of the English language. This is episode 112, Northern Messenger. In this episode, we're going to officially move our chronological narrative into the 1300s. We'll continue to look at the reign of Edward I, and we'll see how his plans to conquer and subdue Scotland started to fall apart as Scotland rose in rebellion. A fierce independent streak had always existed in the north, so the Scots didn't need much motivation to take up arms against Edward's forces. The distinct culture of the north was reflected in the speech of the people. The people of northern England and southern Scotland spoke a similar dialect of English, and that dialect was quite different from the English spoken in the south of England, where the English government was located. During this period, we start to get a sense of just how different the dialect of the North was. Around the time that Scotland rose in rebellion, we have the first document composed in the northernmost dialect of Middle English, a document called Cursor Mundi. And for the first time, we can analyze this dialect and see why the people of the South sometimes had difficulty understanding the English spoken in the North. So this time, we'll look at the northern dialect of Middle English. But before we begin, let me remind you that the website for the podcast is historyofenglishpodcast.com, and you can sign up to support the podcast at patreon.com slash historyofenglish. Now this time, I want to turn our attention to the north of Britain and explore the very important developments that were taking place there. These developments were political, literary, and linguistic, so there's a lot to cover. Let's begin by picking up with Edward's conquest of Scotland in 1296, which we looked at last time. Following the invasion of Scotland, Edward headed across the Channel to secure his rights to Gascony in the south of France. That French invasion quickly fell apart, and Edward and the French king soon agreed to a truce. Several years of negotiations between the two kings followed, which ultimately preserved Edward's claims to the region. The agreement that was reached also stipulated that there would be two marriages. First, Edward, who was now a widower, agreed to marry the French king's sister, Margaret. This was an interesting marriage because Edward was 60 years old and Margaret was in her late teens. But it was the other arranged marriage that had much more important implications for our story, at least in the long term. It was agreed that Edward's son and heir to the throne would marry the French king's daughter. And the reason why this second marriage between the children of the two kings was so important is because it meant that any children born to that marriage would be the grandchildren of both kings, with a theoretical claim to both thrones. And that's important because the French royal line, the Capetians, was about to run out of male heirs. When that happened in the early 1300s, it allowed Edward's grandson, Edward III, to claim the French throne. And that set in motion a long series of conflicts between England and France that became known as the Hundred Years' War. And that conflict is important to our story because it led to a rise of pro-English and anti-French sentiment in England. And that sentiment ultimately pushed French into the background and allowed English to re-emerge as the undisputed language of English government and society. 
So this seemingly obscure marriage between Edward's son and the French king's daughter was destined to have some major long-term consequences, and we'll cover all of those in more detail as we move through the 1300s. Now, as Edward was negotiating that settlement with France, he was having to deal with a challenge to his rule up in Scotland. It was a popular uprising led by a man named William Wallace. Interestingly, this was not really a rebellion by the nobles of Scotland. Most of the important nobles were actually descendants from Anglo-Normans. I mentioned that way back in episode 77. The Balliols, the Bruces, and the soon-to-become-important Stuarts all had Norman connections, and many of those nobles held lands in England as well as Scotland. So initially, many of those prominent nobles were reluctant to join a full-scale rebellion against Edward. That meant that the Scottish uprising was literally that, a rising from the bottom up. William Wallace was the son of a knight from southern Scotland. He wasn't from a baronial family, but he gathered a lot of followers in the southern part of Scotland. While Edward was away in France, Wallace was able to join forces with another rebel leader from northern Scotland named Andrew de Murray, and together they managed to defeat an English army at Stirling Bridge in September of 1297. After the victory, Wallace was knighted, and he was declared the sole guardian of Scotland. He was also designated as the leader of the Scots army in the absence of the deposed king, John Balliol, who was in exile. So Wallace emerged as the leader of the rebellion. The English defeat at Stirling Bridge was the first major sign that Edward's rule in Scotland was tenuous, and it was going to require an ongoing effort if Edward wanted to keep it under control. It started to become apparent that the conquest of Scotland was never going to be as decisive as the conquest of Wales. Scotland was too big and too far away from the center of English government in the south of England. In fact, once the rebellion was underway, Wallace actually took the battle across the border to England itself. Shortly after the victory at Stirling Bridge, he led a major raid into northern England. That forced Edward to return to England from France and to march his forces to the north to confront Wallace in the summer of 1298. Wallace avoided a direct confrontation for as long as he could, Without the full support of the Scots nobles, he was at a military disadvantage, especially with the lack of a cavalry. Edward eventually discovered that Wallace's forces were camped near the town of Falkirk in central Scotland. Edward finally forced Wallace into a face-to-face -face battle on July 22, 1298, at what became known as the Battle of Falkirk. Edward used his archers and crossbowmen to break Wallace's flanks, and the Scots' forces were soon defeated. Many men were killed on both sides of the battle, and Edward got his victory and re-established his authority in Scotland. But Wallace managed to escape, and the rebellion continued. By this point, Edward's army was tired and running low on resources, so he withdrew back across the border to Carlisle in northern England. From there, the English forces kept a close eye on the situation in Scotland, and over the next five years, Edward launched three more invasions of Scotland, but none of the invasions were decisive. The Scots had learned a hard lesson from Falkirk. 
they avoided any large-scale battles that might prove decisive. Edward still claimed that he was the King of the Scots, but he was never able to secure his hold on the region. Now, the events in Scotland are important to the story of English because they eroded the traditional role of Gaelic in the government of Scotland. Most of Scotland spoke Gaelic, or Gaelic as it's pronounced in Scotland. That was the traditional Celtic language of the region. But in the southern part of Scotland, people spoke English. Back in episode 77, I discussed how a Scottish military victory about three centuries earlier had moved the border between England and Scotland southward. And when that border moved, the northernmost part of Northumbria became part of southern Scotland, and that included the city of Edinburgh. So all of the English speakers in that region came under Scottish rule. Since then, the people in that southern region of Scotland had continued to speak English, but their Old English language had evolved over time, and it would continue to evolve into what became known as Scots. That southern region of Scotland was also where the Anglo-Norman influence was the greatest. As I noted, many of the noble families from that region had connections to the nobility of England. And when the Scots king, Alexander III, died without an heir, leaving a power vacuum, the center of power soon shifted to those noble families in the south, where people spoke English. For now, French was the official language of the Scottish royal court. But by the end of the 1300s, French had been replaced with the Scots dialect of English. And by the early 1400s, Scots was the official language of the Scottish government. Now, I just referred to Scots as an English dialect. And as I've noted before, there are many in Scotland who would take exception to that. They would refer to Scots as a distinct language. And I'm not going to resolve that debate here. And I don't really need to, because at the current point in our story, Scots wasn't really a distinct manner of speech yet. Even though the English speakers in Scotland and Northern England were separated by a political border, their respective dialects were still largely the same around the year 1300. In fact, most modern scholars make no distinction between the English of Scotland and the English of Northern England during this period. Both regions are usually lumped together as part of a common dialect region known as the Northern Dialect of Middle English. So, as Edward's forces went back and forth across the Scottish border, they would have encountered very little difference in the speech on each side. There may have been some minor differences, but the surviving documents from those regions suggest that the speech was largely the same. That's why this is considered one common dialect region in early Middle English. Now, I noted that scholars have reached this conclusion by examining the surviving documents from those northern regions. But here's the thing. Surviving English documents from those regions are virtually non-existent until the current point in our story. Of course, there are Old English documents from those regions, composed before the Norman Conquest, but as we know, English documents largely disappeared in the wake of that conquest. And when English documents finally started to reappear, they mostly came from the South and the Midlands. We don't really have a significant piece of literature from the North until the current point in our story around the year 1300. That document is called Cursor Mundi, 
and it was composed in the north of England, probably in or around the city of Durham. It provides modern scholars with the first real opportunity to examine the speech of northern England in the post-conquest period. Now, since this document was composed in northern England, you may be wondering how scholars know that the speech was essentially the same across the border in Scotland. Well, the first English documents from Scotland appear in the later part of the 1300s, and those documents show very little, if any, difference in dialect. It's not until the 1400s that Scots really started to become a distinct dialect. We'll look at some of those early Scots documents in a future episode, but for now, let's focus on that document that appeared around the year 1300, called Cursor Mundi. It's a long poem that recounts much of the world's history as described in the Bible. It begins with an account of the creation and then covers many of the major events of biblical history. It also pulls in legends and stories from other sources, and it survives in many different manuscripts, so it was apparently very popular at the time. The title comes from a later copy, and even though the poem itself was written in English, the title is Latin. Cursor Mundi literally means the runner of the world, or the messenger of the world. Cursor meant runner, or something that moves, and it's related to other Latin-derived words like course and current. In the modern era, English has actually borrowed the word cursor in its original form for use in computer technology. The cursor on the computer screen is the thing that moves around and lets you modify the content on the screen. We also have it in almost its original form in the word cursory, which means quick, as in a cursory review of a document. And we also have it in the related Latin and French word courier, meaning a person who runs errands and delivers messages. And that word courier actually captures more of the original sense of the word cursor. Again, it meant a runner or messenger. And in this poem, the word is used in that context because the poem is delivering a message about the world. The second word, mundi, meant world. We also have the same Latin root in the word mundane, which originally meant of this world or belonging to this world, as opposed to something spiritual. And today, mundane has more of a sense of something common or routine. So, mundi meant world, and cursor mundi meant the runner or messenger of the world. Now, the original manuscript composed in the north of England has been lost, but that original manuscript was copied many times, and several of those copies have survived the centuries. The poet identifies himself as a cleric, but he doesn't specifically state where the poem was composed. As I noted, some scholars think the original version was composed around Durham, but regardless of the exact town or city, there's no doubt that it was a product of northern England. The language itself is a giveaway, but we don't even have to rely upon the dialect of the poem to reach that conclusion, because the poet actually tells us that he wrote it in the dialect of northern England so that the people of the north could better read it and understand it. And in telling us that, he draws a sharp contrast between the language of the North and the language of the South. 
He does this in a passage where he explains why he translated a particular text that had been written in a dialect of southern England. The text was a story about the assumption of the Virgin Mary into heaven upon her death. And as I said, the text was composed in the south of England in a dialect that was understandable in the south. But the poet says that he had to translate the story into the dialect of northern England so that it could be understood by the people of the north. Here's that passage about the translated story, first in modern English and then in the original Middle English. In southern English it was drawn, and I have turned it into our own language of the northern people, who can read no other English. In southern English was it drawn, and he have turned it into her own. Language of the northern laid, that can none other English read. Now, the notion that northern English was very different from southern English should not be a surprise. We've seen references to it before. Nearly two centuries earlier, the great historian William of Malmesbury had written in Latin that, quote, The whole language of the Northumbrians, especially in York, is so grating and uncouth that we Southerners cannot understand a word of it, end quote. I mentioned that quote way back in episode 72, so this was not a new development. But the Cursor Mundi poem gives us our first real opportunity to compare and examine those differences. But before we start analyzing some of those differences, let me make a few general comments about this North-South linguistic divide. We know that even in the Anglo-Saxon period, the English spoken in the North was different from that spoken in the South. The northernmost dialect of Old English is known as the Northumbrian dialect. Then the Vikings arrived, and this same northern region became part of the Dane law, and the Norse influence in that region contributed to an even greater linguistic divide. Then, in 1066, the Normans arrived from France, and French influences became more common. Through all of this, the northern dialect continued to evolve, as did all of the other regional dialects. Modern scholars refer to this northernmost dialect as the northern dialect of Middle English. So the old Northumbrian dialect evolved into the Middle English northern dialect. To this very day, there is still a north-south linguistic divide in England and I thought it might be a good idea to give you a modern example of northern speech if you're not familiar with the differences. Of course, there is no generic northern dialect today. Over the past seven centuries, the northern dialect has fractured into many different regional dialects that sometimes vary from county to county and city to city. But since many scholars think the Cursor Mundi poem lived in or around Durham, I thought it would be interesting to listen to an actual speaker from that region. This sample comes from the British Library archives. The British Library maintains a large collection of dialect samples from throughout Britain, and many of them were recorded many years ago, so they sometimes reflect an older form of speech that may be gradually disappearing. This particular clip was recorded in 1954 and the man speaking was a farmer from the Durham region named John Pert. He was born in 1872, so his dialect reflects the speech of the region over a century ago. In this clip, he talks about his life as a farmer. 
and to help you out a bit as you listen, he describes the process of mowing grass by hand before tractors arrived. He refers to a scythe and a sneed. A scythe is a stick with a curved blade at the end, and the sneed is the stick or handle of the tool. And you'll notice that when he refers to the blade, he pronounces it bleed. So here's the clip. I was born in Bornup, you know. Uh, oh, that's a long time, Jane. Who had them? Well, not on the commissioner's property. Some had bits of their own. Bits of farms of their own. Oh, I farmed all my life. Mm -hmm. I, yes, I farmed all my life. Well, there's all something to do on a farm, you know. You're always uh, on a fencing or something to keep her in repair. And then harvest would be long, you know. Nobody a few weeks till hair time. I'll be generally started here about 21st of June, this last few years. Especially since tractors come. I've used the size more only the man of this country, this deal. Hillen, you know, the farm where I come from to here. It was a heavy out place, a lot of bank side. And I've more wood size, it wasn't days on them bank sides to get the crop, you know, off. Hair crop off. Well, anybody knows my about size of me. I've used some size of my time. Aye. Well, if a nice tool, I could nearly knock a yaker off. A yaker of land. A nice tool. With a, a nice light, what I call American size, Yankee size, they call them. Not a not an old-fashioned one, uh, with a good long sneeze and a good long bleed, like an Irishman used to come with. They had good long sneeze, you know, and good long size bleeds. But they used to mow level around. Level, you know, food machines come. The food mowing machines come. Oh, there's a lot of Irishmen used to come over here in mowing size. See much in acre. They eat the lemon at spring and, and then clip it in June and July and, and then dip me in August and, and dip me at the uh, back end and then selling time, you know, sorting out to get the rafts away, selling time and, and then you never know till it's took time in November. <laughs> You're always at it. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's an example of a northern dialect from the county of Durham. Let me give you another quick sample of modern speech in the north of England. This is a voice sample contributed by listener Paul from Yorkshire. Paul gives us a sentence in a Yorkshire dialect and then in a more standard English dialect. When I were a lad and I were bored, my father had said to me, go out and lake. So I'd go out to the park and start laking with my mates. When I was a boy, and I was bored, my father would say to me, go out and play. So I'd go out to the park and play, start playing with my friends. The word lake, Old English or Norse, meaning to play. The word lake, meaning to play, is indeed a Norse word. 
and this points to another key feature of Northern English dialects. They tend to retain a higher portion of Norse words since the region was once part of the Danelaw. This fact is very apparent in the Cursor Mundi. The poem survives in its original Northern version, but it soon spread to the south of England, where it was copied by a scribe who rewrote the poem in his Southern English dialect. So this southern version allows us to compare the northern and southern dialects, and the comparison can be done line by line. Scholars who have compared the two versions have determined that about 9% of the words in the northern version are from Old Norse, compared to only 4.5% in the southern version. So there are twice as many Norse words in the northern manuscript. The Norse influence in the North is represented by several key features which I've mentioned in earlier episodes. First of all, the Cursor Mundi poet uses the Norse pronouns, they, them, and their, where the Southern text uses the more traditional English pronouns, he, him, and her. Now, as we know, those modern th pronoun forms came from Old Norse, and they came in via the Northern dialect of Middle English. But at this point, around the year 1300, they were still largely confined to the north of England. Another common Norse feature in the Cursor Mundi is the pronunciation of many words with traditional Norse sounds rather than Old English sounds. As we know, Old Norse and Old English were closely related languages with a very similar vocabulary. But Old English developed certain sound changes that didn't occur in Old Norse, as we saw in the earlier episodes, the hard K sound found in many Germanic words was softened into a CH sound in many Old English words, and the Germanic SK sound was softened to an SH sound in Old English. But Old Norse retained those original Germanic sounds, and thanks to that Norse influence, the Northern dialect tended to retain those harder K and SK sounds. So we find Kirk or Kirk in the north and Church in the south. In Middle English documents, we find northern texts using the word skirt for the same piece of clothing described as shirt in the south. And we'll see more examples of this as we go through a few passages of the Cursor Mundi. The northern dialect also gave us a couple of grammatical features that didn't exist in the south. For example, when we make a noun plural, we usually add an s or es to the end of the word, from cat to cats, and from house to houses. Well, that was originally a feature of the northern dialect. In the south of England, nouns were usually made plural by adding an en to the end. A few of those southern forms are still hanging around. We have plural words like children, brethren and oxen. But for the most part, the southern en ending has lost out to the northern s and es endings. At the current point in our story around the year 1300, those northern s and es endings were starting to be used in the south, but they had not become fully accepted yet. Even as late as Shakespeare in the early modern English period, this was still not a fully settled issue in the south. Shakespeare used ayen for eyes, shun for shoes, and hausen for houses. 
Again, as we go through portions of the Cursor Mundi, we'll see that the northern poet routinely used the S and ES endings, where the southern translator used the EN ending. Another northern grammatical feature that eventually spread south also involved an S and ES ending, but in this case, it was the S and ES used for verbs in third-person singular. So, he watches or she loves. Again, even though this is standard in modern English, it was once limited to the north of England. The southern forms were different. In the Midlands, people used an EN ending. So, instead of she loves, people would say she lovin'. In the far south of England, people would use another verb ending, eth, E-T-H. So, they would say she loveth. So, as you traveled from north to south, you would hear the verb form change from loves to lovin' to loveth. Once again, the northern S form spread southward during the Middle English period and became standard over time. But again, the issue still wasn't completely settled in the time of Shakespeare. As most of you probably know, he used both the S ending and the eth ending in his various works. By the way, it isn't entirely clear where the northern S ending came from. It may have developed from an SK verb ending that was common in Old Norse, but modern scholars are not entirely sure about that. There was one other important feature of the northern dialect which I've mentioned before, and that involved the pronunciation of the long A sound. Back in episode 96, I talked about how that sound changed in the south of England, from ah to aw. Ah. During the Great Vowel Shift in the 1400s and 1500s, it shifted again to the o oh sound. So we have Old English stan, Middle English ston, and Modern English stone. Well, as I noted in that episode, that sound change did not occur in the north of England and in Scotland. So, this northern dialect retained the original ah sound of Old English. So, around the current point in our story, a speaker in the south would have said ston, but a speaker in the north would have said stan. This difference can be detected in the documents of this period because southern writers used letter o for this new sound. So, southern manuscripts spell these words with an o, where northern manuscripts use the traditional letter A when spelling the same word. Again, the northern and southern versions of the Cursor Mundi reflect these differences. Now, all of the northern dialect features I just mentioned were discussed in earlier episodes, but I wanted to put all of those together for you so you could get a sense of how this northern dialect differed from the dialects of the south. These are not all of the differences, they're just some of the major ones and they are prominent in the Cursor Mundi. So, let's turn to the actual language of that poem. I'm going to take you through the first few lines of the prologue of the poem. The poem explains that people love to read romances and stories about Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, King Arthur, and Charlemagne. But the poet says that he composed his work in the honor of the Virgin Mary. He also says that French rhymes are everywhere, but there's nothing for those people who only speak English. So, he has composed his poem in English for those people who have no ability to speak French. 
Here are the first ten lines in modern English. Men yearn to hear poems and to read romances in various manners or styles. Of Alexander the Conqueror, of Julius Caesar the Emperor, of the strong strife of Greece and Troy, where many thousand lost their life, of Brutus, that warrior bold of hand, the first conqueror of England, King Arthur, that was so great, whom none in his time was like. Now here's the same passage in the northern dialect of Middle English. Man gernis rimus fortiher, and Roman trero manoreser, of Alexander the conqueror, of Julius Caesar the emperor, of Grace and Troy the strong strife, there are many thousand leases their leaf, of brought that barren bold of hand, the first conqueror of England, King Arthur that was so reek, whom none in his team was leak. Now let's break that down a little bit. The very first line is man gernis rimus for to hear. Literally, man yearns for rhymes for to hear. The verb is gernis or yearns, with that s ending that was common in the north, and which is also standard in modern English. But the slightly later southern copy of the poem renders the word as gernin with an en ending that was common around London and the Midlands. So right out of the gate, we see the difference between the two versions. Also note that the northern poet uses the word remus or rhymes with that plural s ending that was common in the north and which also became standard over time. So much of this poem looks and sounds similar to modern English. And as these elements mixed with other elements from the south we can start to get an idea of how modern English emerged from a mixture of these various dialects. The second line of the poem is And Romans read on manner ser and romances read in manner ser. Ser was a Norse word that meant various. So on manner ser meant of various manners or of various styles. So people like to listen to rhymes and romances of various styles. Now the southern version of the text used a different wording. Instead of manera ser, the southern poet used the phrase diverse manera, diverse manner. Diverse is a French word, and it was a brand new word in English at this point. So whereas the northern poet used a Norse word, the southern scribe used a new French word. And that shows how much Norse influence there was in the language of the North. Now let me make one other note about the second line of the poem. An Romans raid on manera ser. The verb here is raid or read. The northern poet renders the word phonetically as R-E-D. Remember that the letter E had the A sound at the time. So R-E-D was raid, with no inflectional ending. But the southern scribe who reworked the poem rendered the word as R-E-D-E, -E, so he added an E to the end. In an earlier episode, I discussed how the various inflectional endings of Old English had mostly collapsed into a single generic uh ending by this point, represented by letter E. 
Many Middle English documents are filled with words that end with a simple generic E, representing what had once been a variety of very specific endings. So the E wasn't really doing anything anymore. It was just a lingering remnant of a past era when endings were much more important. So it was probably inevitable that English speakers would eventually drop those generic E's at the end of all of those words, since they no longer served any purpose. And that's exactly what had happened in the north of England by this point. Most manuscripts composed in the north drop many of the final E's. And even when the E is retained, most scholars think it was probably silent in the north by this point. So here we see the northern poet drop the E in the verb raid or read, whereas the southern poet retains the E in his spelling and probably pronounced it as well. I should note that both writers spelled the word manner the same way, with an E at the end, M-A-N-E-R-E. -E. But again, most scholars agree that the E was probably silent in the North. Of course, it was eventually dropped in both the North and the South, but sometimes that silent E was retained as a marker to indicate that the preceding vowel was pronounced as a long vowel. And that was the origin of our modern silent E at the end of many words in modern English. For purposes of this episode, the important thing to take from all of that is that E first fell silent in the north of England. And by the time of the Cursor Mundi, it was either being dropped altogether or it was being retained in the spelling but not pronounced. Now, I've only analyzed the first two lines of a poem that's nearly 30,000 lines long. And in just those first two lines, we can see lots of important developments, and we can see lots of differences between the dialects of the North and the South. Let me point out a few other specifically Northern features in those first few lines. In line six, we have many thousand laces their leaf, many thousands lost their life. So here we have the Norse pronoun there instead of the Old English pronoun her. In line 7, the legendary founder of Britain named Brutus is described as bald of hand, which reads as bald, B-A-L-D, of hand. So why did Brutus have bald hands? Well, he didn't. This is actually the word bold. He was bold of hand. The Old English version of the word was bald, and here we see the northern text retain that original form and that original long A sound. But remember, in the south of England, that sound experienced the changes I discussed earlier, from ah to aw ah to o. Oh. And the southern version of the text reflects that change and renders the word with an O, spelled B-O-L-D-E. And again, the southern version adds that generic E to the end, which is missing in the northern version. And in the last two lines that I read earlier, the northern poet rhymes rich and like. Now, those words don't rhyme today, but they did rhyme in the poet's northern dialect. Rich was pronounced reek, and like was pronounced leek. Here are those two lines again. King Arthur that was so reek, whom none in his team was leek. Literally, King Arthur was so rich, whom none in his time was like.
First of all, the vowel sound has obviously evolved in both words. But originally, they had the traditional long I sound of Old and Middle English, which was E, Rik, and Lik. But let's focus on the final K sound. If you've listened to all the episodes, you might remember that I talked about the word rich in one of the early episodes, specifically episode 5, where I talked about the letter C. It originally meant powerful or great, and that's how the word was used here. When the poet says that King Arthur was rich or rich, he didn't necessarily mean that Arthur had a lot of money. He meant that Arthur was powerful and great. In the Middle Ages, powerful and great men tended to be associated with nobility, so they also tended to be wealthy. And over time, the English word came to be associated mainly with the wealth of a person. In early Old English, the word was probably pronounced something like rica. But as I noted earlier, that K sound softened to a CH sound in the South, and the word became richa in Old English. And by the way, the word like worked the same way. It was pronounced more like licha in Old English. But in the north of England, the Norse versions of those words were common. The Norse versions were riker and liker. And remember that the northern dialect tended to retain the hard K sound, where Southern English had the softer CH sound. So here, the northern poet renders the words as rik and lik. But the southern scribe changed both of those words to richa and licha. Now today, in modern English, we have those words as rich and like. So we kept the southern form of rich with the ch sound at the end, and we adopted the northern version of like with the k sound at the end. The fact that modern English has retained rich from the south and like from the north shows how both of those regions contributed to modern English. As people from around England converged in places like London, these dialects mixed together and English speakers tended to settle on one form or the other over time. The difference between the K sound of the North and the softer CH sound of the South was one of the distinguishing features of these two dialects. And a few lines later in the Cursor Mundi, the Northern poet uses the word ilkon, which is barely recognizable to most modern English speakers. But if we substitute a southern ch for the northern k sound, we go from ilkon to ilchon, which is actually an early version of the phrase each one. So ilkon is simply a northern version of each one, ilk being the northern equivalent of southern each. In just a few lines of this old northern poem, we've seen lots of features which distinguish the northern dialect from the speech of Southern England. I want to conclude our look at the Cursor Mundi by looking at a passage from near the end of the prologue. This passage is interesting because it explains why the poet chose to compose the poem in English instead of French. This passage reflects the re-emerging sense of pride in English, and it suggests a certain resentment at the prominent role of French at the time. Here's the passage. I'll rotate the Modern English translation and the original Middle English version. After the Holy Church's state, 
This book has been translated into the English tongue to be read for the love of the English people, the English people of England, for the common people to understand. French rhymes are read and are common in each place. Most are written for Frenchmen. But what is there for him who can speak no French? After Holly Kirkstadt, this ilk book as translat, into English tongue to read, for the love of the English laid, English laid of England, for the common to understand. Frankis Remus here a read, common leak in ilk state. Must as it wrote for Frankis man, what is for him na Frankis can? In the nation of England, English men have a common speech with which most may succeed. Most find it necessary to speak with it. But seldom, by any chance, was the English tongue praised in France. If we give to each their own language, I do not think we do them any outrage. To the common English man I write, to he who understands what I say. And England the nation, as Englishman there in common, the speech of that man with must me spare, must there we to speak or ne'er? Seldom was for any chance praised English tongue in France. Gave we ilkan der longish, may think we do them non outrage. To laud an Englishman he spell, that understandest that he tell. This passage contains a lot of features that we've already examined. We find the Norse pronoun forms them and there. We find the prominent northern K sound in kirk instead of the southern church. And once again, we see the use of northern ilk instead of southern each. We also see the old ah sound, which became aw and then o in the south. So the poem uses holly, most, and na instead of southern holy, most, and no. But there's one other thing that stands out. The scribe routinely refers to himself as I, pronounced E at the time. This was a shortening of the Old English pronoun each, spelled I-C. This change was mostly complete in the Northern dialect by this point. So our modern first-person pronoun I was established in the North first. But in the South, each was still common. Now, this is probably a good time to discuss some important developments concerning the letter I that were taking place in early Middle English. First of all, as I just noted, the single letter I was now its own word, the first-person pronoun I. And when it was used as a pronoun, it was becoming a common practice to capitalize it to make it stand out. Otherwise, a single lowercase i would tend to get lost in the flowing script of this period. More on that in a moment. The northern scribes were also starting to use the letter i in another way, to mark a long vowel sound. I've alluded to this before, back in episode 89. To indicate a long a sound, they would sometimes put an i after it giving us the A-I spelling of words like rain, raid, and saint. They also put it after an E, 
giving us the EI spelling of words like weight and freight. It was also added after a U, producing a UI spelling that never really caught on in the South, but was popular in the North, and it still survives in Scotland. That's why the Scots word good is spelled G-U-I-D. And they even put an I after an I to indicate a long I sound. In fact, in one of the passages I read earlier, we had the word life, but it was spelled L-I-I-F. Now, there was a problem with putting two I's together in the flowing handwritten text of the Middle Ages. If you did that, it looked like a U. It was much like modern cursive writing. If you write double I's in modern cursive, the two I's look like a U, especially if there are no dots above the I's. So L-I-I-F looked like Luf. This was a constant problem with the letter I during this period. When it appeared before or after a U, it looked like a W. In a word like minimum, all of the repeating up and down strokes made it almost impossible to determine where one letter ended and another began. So scribes looked for ways to deal with this problem, to make the letter I stand out. As I just noted, they capitalized the I when it was used by itself as a pronoun. Another technique conceived by European scribes was to put a dot above the I, and that soon became standard. The dot helped the eye to stand out above the line of text, but scribes also modified the eye to make it stick out below the line. They did that by giving the eye a little tail at the bottom to make it stand out. The tail usually curved to the left, and it became standard to do that with the second eye when two eyes were used back to back. In fact, that's how the Cursor Mundi poet spelled his words. When he wrote L-I-I-F for life, he gave the second I a little tail. Well, no one knew it at the time, but that little tail in the I was the beginning of a brand new letter, our modern letter J. There was no letter J at this time. There was just an I that was sometimes written like a J to make it stand out. But English was borrowing a lot of words from French with a J sound at the front. Words like judge and justice and jury and January and July. You might remember that the J sound in all of those words had evolved out of what was originally an I sound in early Latin. All of those words once began with an I sound and were spelled with an I. But over the centuries, that sound had evolved from I to Y to J. I've talked about that before. You might remember that the name of the Roman Emperor Caesar went from Iulius to Iulius, and then in French it became Julius. But it was still spelled with an initial I. Well, after the printing press was introduced a little later in our story, it became common to use the fancy version of the I at the beginning of those words to represent that J sound. And once that fancy I with the tail was assigned to that sound, it started to be viewed as a distinct letter. 
and that eventually produced our letter J. So J is really just a fancy I, which was assigned to a specific sound that evolved out of the I sound in Latin. Again, it took a few centuries to get from fancy I with a tail to the distinct letter J, but we can see the very beginning of that process in English in works like the Cursor Mundi. When the scribe spelled life, L-I-I-F, and when he gave the second I a tail to make it distinct, his intent was presumably to indicate a long vowel sound and to make the second I stand out, but he was actually employing a technique that ultimately produced our modern letter J. I should also make it clear that this fancy I was not limited to the northern dialect of English, and it wasn't invented in the north of Britain. Latin scribes had invented the technique, and it was used in other parts of Britain, and for that matter in other parts of Europe. We see a similar use in the Swedish name Bjorn, B-J-O-R-N, and the name of the Icelandic singer Björk, B-J-O-R-K. But in Britain, this fancy I was especially common in the north, where double I's were much more common and where there was a need to distinguish them in writing. There was one other important development in the north of England that shaped the way we use the letter I today. That development was the merger of the Y sound with the I sound. Now today, letters Y and I can represent the same vowel sounds, but they represented different sounds in Old English. The letter I had the E sound as we've seen, and we still have that sound in some loan words like pizza. The letter Y had a slightly different sound. It was pronounced like an I with the lips rounded. So I was pronounced E and Y was pronounced E. This sound still exists in some European languages, but it's disappeared from standard English. As I noted, it disappeared from the northern dialect region in early Middle English. There, the speakers just stopped rounding their lips, so E just became E. Linguists say that the Y became unrounded, and when that happened, the Y sound was identical to the I sound. By the way, this same change happened in eastern England from London northward. Now, you may be saying, so what? But this was a big deal because it gave scribes a new way to solve the problem they had with writing the letter I. As we saw, the letter I often got lost in the flowing handwriting style of the time. I mentioned that one solution was to put a dot above the I. Another solution was to capitalize the I when it was used by itself as a pronoun. And a third solution was to give it a little tail, which eventually became our letter J. And now, in the north and east of England, scribes had a fourth solution. They could simply take out the I and put a Y in its place. A Y was much more distinct, so it became common to substitute a Y for an I. Words like my, by, fly, baby, lady, and pretty all got their modern Ys at the end through this process, a process that began with the convergence of the Y and I sounds in the north and east of England. 
and you might have noticed something interesting about the placement of the Y in those words. The Ys are at the end. The Y substitution was sometimes made in other parts of words, but it was especially common at the end of a word because scribes didn't like to end a word with an I. So it became standard to replace the I with a Y at the end of a word, especially around London where modern standard English emerged. Again, this spelling change happened when a word ended with an I. But if the I was not located at the end, it was more likely to be retained. That's why my got a Y at the end, but mine retained its I. This also explains another English spelling rule. When we have a word that ends in a Y and we make it plural, we drop the Y and add I-E-S. So baby and lady become babies and ladies with an I-E-S. That plural ending means that the I is no longer at the end. The S is now at the end. And remember that that plural S ending is a northern innovation. And since the I is no longer at the end, we don't have to use the Y anymore. So that plural ending means that we can revert back to the original letter I. And that produces I-E-S. Now I should note that we do have a few words that end in I in modern English. Words like ski and khaki and spaghetti. But those are relatively recent loanwords that came in with non-traditional spellings, and those spellings were retained. Again, the substitution of Y for I really became common a little later, but that substitution was dependent on the merger of the I and Y vowel sounds, and that merger took place in the north and east of England around the current point in our story. And we can see how a slight change in a vowel sound can have a dramatic impact on spelling conventions. So with that, I'm going to conclude our look at the Northern dialect of Middle English. We've seen several unique features of this dialect, some of which have passed into Standard English and some of which didn't. But to get a better sense of the contrast between the speech of the North and the speech of the South, we need to take a closer look at the Southern dialect of Middle English. So next time, we'll shift our focus south and look at an example of the Southern dialect. Once again, we'll see some features that became standard and some that remained regional. We'll also examine some of the modern differences between accents of the South and those of the North. There are a few pronunciations that clearly distinguish one group from the other, but most of those differences are the product of changes that took place in the South. So we'll look at those developments as well. Until next time, thanks for listening to the History of English podcast. Mm -hmm.